If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the August 9th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome. With the recent Frameline Film Festival in San Francisco still fresh in our minds, and LA's Outfest only days away, Tonight, we take a look back at queer film history and a few genre-defining films like Milk, Brokeback Mountain, and Call Me By Your Name. But first, let's study up on the history of queers on screen. Queer cinema is as old as the motion picture. In fact, Kino Video released several gay-themed silent films on DVD, the oldest of which was a German drama called Different From Others that first premiered in 1919. Although a plea for tolerance, its story of gay lovers, blackmail, and suicide only foreshadowed films to come. But those dire films had to wait a few years, because the 1930 enactment of the Motion Picture Production Code prohibited any depiction of, or inference to, sexual perversion. That's us. So for the next 30 years, you had to read between the lines to find us on screen. This provision wasn't lifted until October of 1961 just in time for a slew of gay-themed films without happy endings. A taut, tense drama of the most untalked-about subject of our time. First came a British import called Victim. I want to know the truth. I want to know why he hanged himself. He was being blackmailed. That's why he stole? Yes. Someone found out he was a homosexual and blackmailed him? That's it. Takes two to make a reason for blackmail. Were you the other man? Were you? A few months later, the Children's Hour debuted and played to shocked audiences. Yet the Children's Hour never mentioned the words gay or lesbian. I lie in bed night after night praying that it isn't true. But I know about it now. It's there. I don't know how. I don't know why. But I did love you. I do love you. This is the very first film you've ever seen in which there are lesbians. Emmy-winning filmmaker Jane Anderson. And then Shirley MacLaine hangs herself, and the last frame is, is her poor little feet swinging in the shadows of the attic. What kind of a message is that to give people? Shirley MacLaine killed herself because she realized she was a piece of filth. <laughs> oh, I feel so damn sick and dirty, I can't stand it anymore! <laughs> And if the message wasn't clear enough, in 1962, Hollywood released the political parable, Advise and Consent. 
He said to tell you, before you go on with the Leffingwell matter, you ought to remember what happened in Hawaii. And then he hung up. What happened in Hawaii, Brig? What was the voice like? It was crawly. He made it sound like he knew some kind of nasty secret. Is that Brig? What's the matter? He's dead. Brig? In his office. Cut his throat. And there was nothing gay about being gay in 1968's The Detective. The thought of turning, of turning involuntarily into one of them, frightened me and made me sick with anger. I went down there. I had heard about the waterfront. People giggle and make jokes about it. I had had only two experiences before, once in college, once in the army. I thought I'd gotten it out of my life, but I hadn't. I looked at them. Was this what I was like? Oh, my God. Twisted faces, outcasts, lives lived in shadows, always prey to a million dangers. People don't realize what we go through. I was raised in a family that would not even admit that there was such a thing as a homosexual in this world. And here I was. And I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't stop. By the end of the decade, it was so bad that even the characters within the film started to notice the pattern. Well, I'll tell you something, Hallie. When the time comes, you won't have the guts. It's not always like it happens in plays. Not all faggots bump themselves off at the end of the story. Luckily, times changed. In 1971, a year after The Boys in the Band, the British import Sunday Bloody Sunday brought the first passionate gay kiss to the screen. And although its significance is often overlooked, the 1972 film Cabaret reassured many a gay boy. Doesn't my body drive you wild with desire? Well, doesn't it? It's a very nice spot. Oh, do you really think so, darling? It does have a certain kind of style. I mean, look, it's very flat here. Not much hips. And, uh, here. It's a little early in the day for this sort of thing, isn't it? Maybe you just don't sleep with girls. Oh, you don't. Well, listen, we're practically living together. So if you only like boys, I mean, I wouldn't dream of pestering you. Well, do you sleep with girls or don't you? Sally, you don't ask questions like that. I do. We were fun in the 1970s. I've been making a man with blonde hair and a tan. And he's good for relieving my tension. I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Hey, hey, I'm just a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania.
The Rocky Horror Picture Show debuted in 1975 and The Ritz in 1976. We're three caballeros, three gay caballeros. They say we are birds of a feather. You mean to tell me that everybody here is, uh, is, um... We're happy amigos no matter where he goes. Although it's hard to believe, both Cruising and the Village People's Can't Stop the Music came out only four months apart in 1980. That was a mixed message. But the first big gay films to actually put us front and center, to really explore our lives in a positive way, were both released in 1982. Personal Best and Making Love. Finally, there was Pride on Screen. Okay, the truth is I have gotten into a lot of different scenes. I'm a writer. I have to open myself up to new things, expand my horizons. Bart? Zach. Why don't you just say it? I'm gay. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. Seventeen's Call Me By Your Name was more upbeat, but still sad. It's not easy to put Call Me By Your Name into words, so we took our questions to the man who wrote the words. This is Steve Pride, giving you Pride Out Loud from the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, where I'm talking with Call Me By Your Name novelist Andre Osserman. Are you stunned by the success of the film? Totally, totally stunned. I never expected it. I never thought it would happen. And even when they told me they were making a movie, I still didn't believe it was going to happen. What do you think of the the movie as opposed to the vision you had in your head uh, as an author? And it was difficult to say, oh, that's not how I saw it. Yeah, because I saw it happening on the shore of Italy. And this happens in a landlocked area near Milan. But it doesn't matter. I mean, I was very happy with the film. The house that I imagined was a different house. This house is absolutely the most fitting house that I could ever have pictured. So it has given me images that I never had as a writer. Gay men especially have like embraced this. At a function I was at, someone mentioned that they thought it was a good film, but, and the second they said but, there was almost like booze. People wanted to rip them apart. They're so taken by this film, they're obsessed with it, in fact everybody's obsessed by it and I think most people see it many many times and they read the book many times which is something that I never do but apparently it has hit a particular kind of mark and made a mark on people's lives and I still have a hard time figuring out what precisely it is in most cases it's the love that could have been and never happened or it's the love that many people who are so young hope to find in their lives you're a heterosexual man. I know this is a cliche question now. You've probably been hearing a lot. Where did this come from? I don't know. I have no idea where it came from. But once I got started on the gay theme, I couldn't let it go. And it was totally, totally riveting and exciting. I fell in love with the characters. I fell in love with each one, with their love, with everything. 
And clearly, obviously, something is going on inside of me that goes in that direction, but I have no idea where it came from. The speech that the father makes at the end of the film was almost word for word from the book. Yes, and that was extremely gratifying for my vanity, but I think that the speech, the way it was delivered, was... I, I never read the speech again when I give a public reading because it's so well done by um, Michael Stolberg that I will not touch it again. It is the best thing, I think, besides Timothy at the very end, the best thing of the film. I almost walked out at the end without... And I thought, they're with this, they're going. Yes, that is probably the most magical moment and most enchanting and heartbreaking moment is that you see the face and you see the face and you see the face and you don't think much about it until suddenly you see the credits and you realize that, oh my God, the film is over, this story is over, it's finished, it's ended, this is very sad. And that's exactly how I felt and I think most people feel more poignantly because I'm the author, I know how the story ends, but most people are surprised and almost sort of smitten by the whole experience of not now, I could use another five minutes of this film, this story. Actually, it goes on, there's a sequel going to be filmed, correct? They're talking about a sequel, they're talking about many sequels because they want to trace the the sort of the trajectory of their lives through the years, very much the way that the Truffaut did with Antoine Duanel, and that's Luca Guadagnino's project. Whether it comes about or not, I don't know. We discuss possible sort of plot lines. But they didn't use the whole book, so there's still more story in your book they can tell. There is more. I mean, I think half of the book was left out. Uh, but it's not germane to the actual story because the rest is just after love or after years. And I don't think that there's a plot there, really, to be honest. I mean, there's a trip to Rome, but the trip to Rome is just a long, Fellinesque sort of adventure. But there's nothing going on between the two that is any different from what happened before. Is there any moment in the film when you're watching it that you like exclaim to yourself, that's it, they got that moment so right? Oh, that happened many, many times. When he goes into the bedroom and sort of tries the bathing suit, that was not exactly as in the book, but that's the same idea. And finally, when they both speak about the possibility of something happening between them, though they do not name it, nevertheless, it's so oblique and yet at the same time so clear. That was perfect. And it was right out of the book. I'm going to imagine that when you go out, people must give you peaches. (laughs) all the time. I think the peach has become the equivalent of Prout's Madeleine. People always come up and give me peaches, they give me ceramic peaches, they give me images of peaches that they've drawn on the internet. I get peaches all the time. It's a token of affection now. What do you hope people take away from your book and the movie? I want them to experience love, of course. I want them to say, this is what love is. But I also want them, if there is a message, and I'm always hesitant to suggest that there is one, is not just of tolerance, but I hope that parent-child relationships be improved significantly so that if a child is gay, he should see that there's a model out there, there's a solution out there, and that a father, if he has a son who is gay, he should absolutely make it possible for the son to speak if the son is reluctant to. Basically, it's be open, address the issue, it's okay now. And I know you did film festivals a little bit. 
what was the feedback you got from people? A lot of people say that it changed their lives, and I'm I'm such a jerk that I always I always say, how did it do that? And it turns out that they don't know, they don't have an answer. This is Steve Pride giving you Pride Out Loud from the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, where I've been talking with Call Me By Your Name novelist Andre Osterman. Until next time, thanks for listening. Find Call Me By Your Name on Hulu, Stars, Sling TV, and Philo. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Aaron, pioneer in women's music, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Dubbed the Johnny Cash of lesbian folk singing and regarded as a goddess and cultural hero by critics, fans, and like-minded musicians, Theron was one of Canada's most famous folk singers. Born Debbie Foisey in 1952 in Vancouver, British Columbia, she changed her name to Theron, a name retrieved from a friend's dream. In French, it meant iron and rust. Farron left home at age 15 and took odd jobs. Her first gig was a benefit in 1975 where she played her song, Who Loses, followed up by coffeehouse singing performances. She soon attended the Women's Music Festival in Michigan and started shipping albums to the U.S. under her own label, Lucy Records. Her first album was recorded in her basement in 1977, self-titled Farron. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Barney Frank, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. 2005's Brokeback Mountain lost the Academy Award for Best Picture to Crash, but its place in film history can't be argued. When the film came out, Steve Pride sat down with director Ong Lee and its dreamy stars Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger to get the 411. Based on a short story by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Annie Prolu, the film version of Brokeback Mountain was directed by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Ang Lee from a screenplay by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Larry McMoultrie and his longtime writing partner, Diana Asana. It's not just a landmark gay film. It's one of the most heart-wrenching love stories that I've ever seen. Set against the sweeping vistas of Wyoming and Texas, the film tells the story of two young men, a ranch hand and a rodeo cowboy, who meet in the summer of 1963 when they work as sheep herders up on Brokeback Mountain. Ennis Del Mar, played by Heath Ledger, and Jack Twist, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, become friends and then unexpectedly lovers. But at summer's end, the two must come down from Brokeback and part ways. You gonna do this again next summer? Well, maybe not. Like I said, me and I was getting married in November. So, uh, we're trying to get something on the ranch, I guess. You? I might go up to my daddy's place and give him a hand through the winter. I might be back. The army don't get me. Well, I guess I'll see you around, huh? Right. Filmmaker Ang Lee is heterosexual, grew up in Taiwan, and was only nine years old in 1963. So what drew him to this particular story? Gay ranch hands in Wyoming, they're very far from me. But I think it touched that enigmatic subject of love, I think. 
and because the strange combination West Macho Western and a gay love story somehow. I think the infamiliarity for me reached out very far in that mystery. And the emotion lands very hard, but the emotion is about missing, about something you don't get. I think that's very poignant, very profound. Um, it's kind of existential to think that two characters spend 20 years trying to go back to where they started in the mountain in a place that they hardly understand themselves. So that's a calling for me. Remaining in Wyoming, Innes does wed his sweetheart Alma, has two daughters, and struggles to eke out a living. Jack, in Texas, catches the eye of a wealthy rodeo queen, gets a job working for her father. They have a son. Four years pass. One day, Innes gets a postcard from Jack, who's en route to visit from Wyoming. When Jack arrives, it's clear that the passage of time has only strengthened their feelings. In the years that follow, Ennis and Jack meet up several times annually. They struggle to keep their bond alive and secret from their wives. You still go fishing with Jack Twist? Not often. I used to wonder how come you never brought any trouts home. You always said you caught plenty and you know how me and the girls lack fish. So one night I got your creel case open night before you went on one of your little trips price tag still on it after five years and I tied a note to the end of the line it said hello Annis bring some fish home love Alma and then you come back looking all perky and said you caught a bunch of browns and you ate them up do you remember I looked in that case first chance I got and there was my note still tied there that line hadn't touched water in its life it mean nothing Alma don't try and fool me no more Annis I know what it means. Jack Twist. Jack Nasty. You didn't go up there to fish. Innes Del Mar's inability to move beyond the boundaries of expectations, dictated by time and community, brings tear-inducing poignancy to Brokeback Mountain. Actor Heath Ledger stuns in the stoic role. Despite Innes's taciturn nature, Ledger says he found things he admired. In the man he played. His potential, <laughs> you know, he had great potential to love and um, I think the one time you really see the potential is with his kids, his children, because that's that's the one form of love he's really allowed to express. It's not dangerous to him um, and with his wife it just wasn't uh, really love, it was what he thought should be love and, and it was a, a routine that he slipped into because um, it was conventional, it was traditional and uh, um, and obviously his love for, for Jack was forbidden and, and he hated himself for it. He punished himself for it, you know. Um, essentially he was a, uh, you know, homophobic man in love with another man. Um, and, uh, so that, I guess, I guess I, I, I guess I always, um, had faith in the love within him, uh, a lot more than he did. And I, I think that's what all the characters I think found in him too was, was this, uh, the potential within this masculine figure to be kind of vulnerable. And... Although Heath Ledger is receiving all the Oscar buzz, Jake Gyllenhaal's portrayal of the outgoing Jack Twist ranks among his best work, but it's not the role he thought he'd get. I thought that Ang would want to cast me as Ennis and Heath as Jack, just because I felt like Heath was more outgoing and you're used to Heath kind of being a kind of active, less passive presence, you know. And somewhere in my mind, naively, I guess, I thought that. And when we were cast opposite what I thought, 
I realized that Aang recognized in both of us something that I don't think either of us saw necessarily. And that want to always kind of push forward and progress and change things was something in Jack that I felt like I really had too. And that um, the amount of words he says, I think it's sort of the same thing in a different way. They're like yin and yang, you know, and when they come together, I do think they make a circle. Uh, Heath and I talked a lot about it and I, I find a lot of, just in Heath, him in his own nature, I feel like he carries his heart on his shoulder. You know, he's the kind of guy who's always protecting himself in different ways, but he's really a sensitive guy. And uh, whether or not he's talking or not talking, I think you can sense that from him always. And I just was playing with that. Like I saw that and it was like a friendship that we had as actors that was somehow translated to in the movie. One interesting thing about the release of Brokeback Mountain is that despite its pedigree, and despite being wonderful filmmaking, it's not really groundbreaking subject matter. We've had amazing gay love stories told before. But although this began as another potential low-budget gay indie, the casting of two of Hollywood's hottest young heterosexual stars pushed it into the headlines. And the press began to chant, aren't they brave? All we were doing was servicing a story. Actor Jake Gyllenhaal. You know what I think is really more courageous is people who are trying to be intimate in their real life and who are up against the real things. You know, we just were making a movie for two months where we played characters. And I think it's a time where more people are open to this than it might seem. His co-star, Heath Ledger, concurs. I think it's a bit silly. I think it's a bit obvious and, um, you know, the whole that it's daring and that it's brave, you know, firefighters are daring and brave, you know, we're acting. It's like, I'm quite safe right now, you know, (laughs) I'm not hurt, it didn't damage me, I'm alive. I didn't really have to be that brave, I was just doing something that, you know, I like to do. I was performing and portraying, it's my interest. Um, I don't know, I think it's a shame that it's built up too much. Uh, I think it shouldn't be such a big deal. But hopefully that's what this movie will do, is it'll slowly start to kind of open people's eyes and hearts and imagination. I think it's quite a shame that we live in a world where we have, and I think we're moving out of it slowly, where people are so eager to voice their opinions and disgust concerning the ways in which people choose to love one another. I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to me, and I, I, I think, um, I don't know. I, we certainly didn't go into this movie with any political intentions, like we don't want to change the world, but if it helps someone kind of accept other forms of love, then that's certainly not a bad thing. Ironically, filmmaker Ang Lee would have had no problem casting gay actors. I think if they're gay, it make my job easier, and I'll welcome that, and the movie's low-budget film, we don't, we don't need to please a whole lot of people, so a gay actor actually make my job easier. I would love to, but I gotta go with my best choice by the time I have to cast. I think Heath is a great anchorman for that Western thing, and Jake should be a romantic lead. So I just go for the best possible choice. As a filmgoer and critic, I can't imagine a better cast or better storytelling. Brokeback Mountain is beautiful, moving, and tragic. What if you and me had a little ranch somewhere, a little cow and calf operation, be sweet like. You know, hell, Lorene's old man, you better give me down payment to get lost. I mean, he more or less already said it. No, I, I told you it, it ain't gonna be that way. You know, you, 
you got your wife and baby in Texas, and you know, I got my life in Riverton. That's so. You and Alma, that's a life. Oh, you shut up about Alma. This ain't her fault. The bottom line is, we're around each other, and, and this thing grabs hold of us again in the wrong place, in the wrong time. And what would Heath Ledger like the audience to take away from the film? For me, it's a story of how love transcends all. The environment you're born in, um, the opinions of generations before you, i.e. your family, your parents, your father, um, and how love is uh, uh, stronger than opinions that are installed in you as a child, and that it can break down those barriers, and, um, uh, and, and just the power of love. This has been a conversation with Ang Lee, Heath Ledger, and Jake Gyllenhaal. Brokeback Mountain is from Focus Features. For more information on this or other LGBT films, point your internet browser to prideonscreen.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. He was a friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. Every time I think of him, I just can't keep from crying. Cause he was a friend of mine He died on the road He died on the road He just kept on moving Never reaped what he could sow and he was a friend of mine Watch Brokeback Mountain on Peacock, Hulu, Sling TV, and Fubo TV. A queer film is sometimes in the eye of the beholder, as Quentin Tarantino explains in this scene from the 1994 film Sleep With Me. What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots. It is a story about a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. That's serious. That is what Top Gun is about, man. You've got Maverick. All right, he's on the edge. All right, and you've got Iceman and all his crew. Right. They're gay. They are. They represent the gay man. Right. All right, and they're saying, go, go the gay way, go the gay way. He could go both ways. What about Kelly McGillis? Kelly McGillis, she's, she's, she's heterosexuality. She's saying, no, 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 go the normal way. Play by the rules, go the normal way. And they're saying, no, go the gay way. Be the gay way. Go for the gay way. All right, that is what's going on throughout that whole movie. He goes to her house, right? All right, it looks like they're going to have sex. You know, they're just kind of sitting back. He's taking a shower and everything. They don't have sex. He gets on the motorcycle, drives away. Next scene, next scene you see her. She's in the elevator. She is dressed like a guy. She's got the, the cap on. She's got the aviator class. She's wearing the same jacket that the Iceman wears. She is, okay, this is how I gotta get this guy. This guy's going towards the gateway. So I gotta bring him back. I gotta bring him back from the gateway. So I'm gonna do that through subterfuge. I'm gonna dress like a man. <laughs> All right? That is how she, she, she approaches it. Right. Okay. 
Defying Vegas odds, it was Kelly McGillis and not Tom Cruise who later came out as gay. So far, at least. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Theron Sings, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Theron was surrounded by music at an early age, playing guitar at age 11. Her mother's French-Canadian family played guitars, banjo, accordion, and scrubboard while her grandfather clogged. In her family, music meant fun, love, and laughter. That same flavor came through in her own music. Down the road in 1980, Theron produced her first professional album, Testimony. Many others would follow. A Canadian arts grant in 1985 allowed her to take several years off to develop her musicianship. In 1996, at the Gay and Lesbian American Music Awards, she received an outstanding award for Lifetime Achievement. In 2006, Farron opened an artistic retreat for women in Three Rivers, Michigan called the Fen Beeson Poetry Camp for Women. She said, to me, it's a revolutionary act to continue keeping your artist's soul alive. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Randall Kleiser, director of Grease, Blue Lagoon, White Fang, and It's My Party, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. One of the first big interviews on IMRU was with Harvey Milk conducted in his camera store in San Francisco's Castro neighborhood. So we pulled out the F-stops when the film Milk came out in 2008. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you! A movie about Harvey Milk has been in development at Warner Brothers since 1992. Some of Hollywood's best screenwriters have churned out over 20 scripts, and over the years, Daniel Day-Lewis, Kevin Kline, Richard Gere, Kevin Spacey, James Woods, Robin Williams, and even Steve Carell were all prospective Harvey Milks. So when I heard that Gus Van Zandt was in San Francisco filming Milk with Sean Penn in the title role, I was surprised it wasn't connected to the Warner Brothers project. By the time Lance brought the script over, which is a year and three quarters ago, almost two years ago, the Warner Brothers project had been in a state of somewhat dormancy because it had been 16 or so years and it had been in and out of different incarnations and there was a new incarnation with uh, Brian Singer but he, he was very busy and it was just one of those projects like in development type of projects that I think um, it only affected us in the sense of like you know if we start going on it does that make the other projects start going too which I think existed for us. We never really knew what was going on. We were sort of in the dark. It was very um, spy versus spy. It's been five years since I last spoke with outrider Dustin Lance Black, but I suppose I don't have to ask what he's been up to in the meantime. I started actually diving into the research and doing the work on the movie about four years ago, so that'd be about 2004. And I think that's right around the time that I had a friend introduce me to Cleve Jones. And I'd been wanting to tell a story for a long time, probably in some form or another, do something with the story or the message of the story since I heard it when I was like a teenage kid. Definitely after I came out, it became something I was focused on again. You know, it would just continually come up. I finally saw the documentary. That was really inspirational. And then in 2004, 
this buddy of mine said he wanted to do a rock opera about Cleve Jones, and I just had no idea that Cleve was even still alive. You know, so many of the leaders of that community, you know, didn't make it through the AIDS crisis in the 80s, especially those that lived in San Francisco, but Cleve did. And it, it didn't take more than a couple hours of hanging out with Cleve to know that there was a connection there, to hear, like, the vibrancy of the stories, to know that there was more to it than I'd ever heard. There's more to Harvey than I had read or seen. And thankfully, the guy had faith in me, you know, because there was no studio, there was no money. There was uh, my charge card, and we would head up to San Francisco, and usually like an hour out of San Francisco, he'd call Beck's Motor Lodge and say, hey, we need a place to crash. You got a couple rooms, and we would uh, we'd do an interview at a time. And then eventually, I had met the folks, and I would just start going up on my own a little bit and doing those interviews and digging and trying to find people who had either worked with him or like Art Agnos, who had ran against him, people who he had dated or rubbed you know shoulders with in sort of a more personal way or a family way. And, and so, yeah, it's years. And what was his biggest surprise about Harvey Milk? The people I was interviewing were cautious at first. So you were getting little pieces of information. You were slowly kind of getting access to Harvey. So there weren't like any huge aha moments because you were slowly adjusting to getting to know the man. Looking back, it's like, I don't think when I first heard his story that I would have ever assumed he was so bad at so much in his life. He had failed as a businessman. He couldn't figure out a job that he really cared about. He went from one occupation to the next. He, you know, he was a passionate boyfriend and very romantic, but so closeted that I think he, you know, in a way tortured these younger guys that he dated who were kind of eager to come out and be more open and um, you know, it's basically just how flawed he was as a person. And, uh, and I, you know, th- that's what I, you sort of don't know when you see some of the other stuff that's out there about him. Um, and you kind of only get to find out if you really get to work and, and, and find things out firsthand. Gus Van Zandt filmed on location in San Francisco in the actual storefront that had been Harvey Milk's camera store in the 1970s. When we first got to San Francisco, the city really hadn't had that many films come there because it's really hard to sort of find places to put the vehicles and the hills. It's just really a pain, and I guess that's one of the main reasons, but the locations were really quite easy compared to stuff like that. The shop, it's a gift shop called Given, and uh, they had a mural of Harvey inside the shop. So they were very into the legacy of the store, and they were just willing to let us close their shop down, which meant, you know, not being able to sell, like, their things, and uh, let us move our set in there for, I think it was, three weeks. And that was relatively easy. The business association on the Castro was, like, very supportive. Most of the people on the street were really supportive of the project. And then the rest of the city was quite easy, yeah. Emil Hirsch plays Cleve Jones. First and foremost thing for me was just talking to Cleve Jones. And uh, he was extraordinarily helpful. So what we did was, you know, we would just get together, we'd go eat, we'd go drive around San Francisco, he'd show me different locations and certain, um, you know, the the symbols of where he was, you know, the places he used to hang out, you know. And uh, it was really um, fascinating hearing his stories because he has so many and you hear some of these tales of, uh, you know, mischief and mayhem that he kind of 
went through when he was when he was younger, and you kind of get transported to that time and place. You know, he'll say, "You see down that street, you know, I was leading a crowd of ten thousand screaming drag queens at midnight thirty years ago." And I'm like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." Playing a historical figure while they look on had its own challenges. I mean, there was definitely an elevated pressure in a certain sense. Like, you know, I wasn't going to do anything that would make him, you know, look too... You know, I mean, I wasn't going to just pick my nose in a close-up or something like that, you know? And maybe that's a good thing that he was there. But at the same time, I always liked to do little things that would kind of drive him crazy. And, you know, I'd just be goofy or I'd do a weird little movement and I knew that, I knew that it would bother him. You know, and, and he'd kind of try to say something, and I'd kind of say, okay, okay, I'll stop it, but I'd keep doing it. Uh, you know, just to, just because, you know, just to kind of toy with him a little bit. But that was good, because, you know, he understood that, you know, he was like, listen, you know, you're doing an interpretation, you're not me, you know, it's your decision to do a lot of different things. And I went, cool, and I held him to it. In the 1980s, Cleve Jones co-founded the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and conceived the AIDS Memorial Quilt. I asked Emil if knowing what Cleve would later accomplish impacted his betrayal. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I wanted to I wanted to play him to where, you know, he you could see potential in him, but in the beginning you don't necessarily have to see some saint. And you know, Cleve says he's like, "Listen, I'm not a saint, you know." Um Cleve's a in many ways, you know, a regular guy, a very intelligent, funny, caring guy. But, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to, I didn't want to portray Cleve as a saint. If anything, I wanted to portray him as a rebel or a um, kind of a renegade, kind of. In this scene from Milk, Harvey and his team have just moved in to his new office at City Hall. Okay, first order of business to come out of this office is the citywide gay rights ordinance just like the one that Anita shot down in Dade County. What do you think, Lotus Blossom? I think it's good. It's not great. Okay, so make it brilliant. We want Anita's attention here in San Francisco. I wanted to bring her fight to us. We need a unanimous vote. We need headlines. Dan White is not going to vote for this. Dan White will be fine. Dan White is just uneducated. We'll teach him. Hey, Harv, uh, committee meets at 9.30. Hey, you guys. Um, say, did you get the invitation to my son's christening? I invited a few of the other soups, too. Oh, well, I'll be there. Great. Thanks. Did he hear you? What the f*** are you going? I would let him christen me if it means he's going to vote for the gay rights ordinance. We need allies. I think he can we hear you. We need everything. everyone. Jesus. I don't think he heard you. Is it just I... me, or is he cute? There's an old saying that behind every successful man, there's a woman. In Harvey's case, it was a man named Scott Smith. In Milk, he's portrayed by the extraordinary actor James Franco. It was pretty amazing just being able to shoot there what had been the center of the gay movement in the entire world. That was that was it. And to be doing it there where it all happened was uh, very unique for me. And Franco was not just awed by the memory of those brave activists. Those people were like uh, advisors on the movie, so they were there every day, like uh, Cleve Jones and Danny Nicoletta and Frank Robinson. And I think they're all in the movie. They play little cameos, not themselves, but other roles. And uh, so they were there every day. And it was a very unique, working on that set, especially in the camera shop, on Castro Street. The film rented it and, and refurbished it to look like the old camera shop. And 
I remember when Frank Robinson, who was uh, Harvey Milk's speechwriter, he also wrote uh, the novel of The Towering Inferno, when he walked onto the set and, you know, I was sitting behind the desk and, uh, you know, the other actors were there. And he, like, looked at me and you could just see in his eyes, it was almost like he was being transported back. And from that moment on, he just called everybody by their character names because those had been his friends. And... It's not like he was a you know method actor or anything like that. It was just that he'd been in, in a way kind of transported back, and it was just almost like easier just to call everybody by their character names. Diego Luna plays Harvey's last lover, Jack Lyra. I I, I knew more about Castro area. I knew more about uh, the movement in San Francisco, but I didn't know any of the specifics, you know. And uh, I was there at the at a film festival showing my documentary, and I show it at the Castro theater. And I remember hearing the name, but uh, but as part of a bigger thing, you know, I never heard this story. And, and the first time I read the script, I was like shocked. It's a story I, I, I felt guilty. I didn't know, you know, it's it's an important story to know. Basically, it's important to know there was a guy that changed the life of many in in. in in those years, you know. There's a feeling that you're doing an important story because it matters to people, you know, and we could feel that around the Castro area, you know, how this man changed the life of many and how this man made that place such a, a free place, a, a happy place to be in. We all have our time machines. Some take us back. They're called memories. Some take us forward. They're called dreams. The film Milk offers a little of both. And according to Gus Van Zandt, during filming, those lines began to blur. There was a take where we were using sort of most of the room, and but the camera was pointed in one direction, and there were three or four actors in the scene, and it's at night. I think it might have been the the night where Anne Cronenberg like gets the endorsement, and there were some people sitting in the sofa, which was outside. And during one of the takes, uh, just somebody walked in from outside and sat down in the sofa during the shot, and after the shot was over and we yelled cut, he got up and walked out and so the actors were like did you see that guy and I said who was it? I didn't see anybody and they said no somebody walked in and sat down and walked out and I was asking him, like what he looked like and they, they kept describing Harvey and I thought well maybe that was like the ghost of Harvey just sort of walking in for a brief second and if it had been Harvey in the camera store what would Dustin Lance Black have said to him oh I mean to Harvey you know I would say thank you to Harvey Harvey I mean, I know it sounds corny, but when I first heard his story and I was a teenager, I was really lucky that we'd been transferred out of an army base in San Antonio, Texas and transferred up to the Bay Area and my mom had remarried. So we were out of the Mormon church and I was sort of able to get out of this really conservative world that I had grown up in and super fortunate to have heard the story of Harvey Milk at a theater that I was working at. And, uh, I was very closeted. I was sort of a dark kid, you know. I was. Um, it's not easy keeping that secret, especially in a world where, you know, in the Mormon church, it is damnation. You are taught from an early age in a conservative environment that you're less than. And uh, to hear about even the notion of an out gay man, like that was new. I didn't know what that was. I thought if you're gay, it's shameful. You hide it and you try to beat it down. And I didn't know that you could just sort of be out much less be openly gay and elected to office and celebrated by people and remembered. I mean, this is, you know, a decade or more after he was assassinated that I was hearing his story, and I don't doubt that it kept me alive long enough to 
to finally find a place where I was strong enough and comfortable enough to, to come out of the closet. Harvey Milk was an ordinary man. He was not a saint. He was not a genius. His personal life was often in disarray. He died penniless. And yet, by his example and by his actions, he most certainly changed the world. We've been talking to Gus Van Zandt, Dustin Lance Black, Emile Hirsch, Diego Luna, and James Franco about their new film, Milk. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. can be streamed free on Peacock or rented on YouTube, Google Play, or Apple TV. Some say there were a lot of queer films before there were any queers depicted on screen. There's a gay film sensibility, right? You're always a little nervous saying that because obviously gay does cover the entire spectrum. Writer-director Bill Condon. But I think, yeah, I think there's a specific delight in camp and a certain kind of wit in characters that you see sort of all over television now and in movies and in ways that aren't identified necessarily as being gay. Annie Mame is the great example of that, just something that is just suffused with the gay sensibility without there being any gay characters. And I think there's Annie Mame and there's Will and Grace and there's not that big a difference. There is a certain kind of appreciation for irony and camp and, and a certain kind of wit that I think you'd have to admit is gay. Jeffrey Friedman, co-director of Paragraph 175 and the Celluloid Closet. I think there is a gay sensibility, and I guess I would define it like that definition of pornography. I know it when I see it. I think it has to do with a sense of being outside and an understanding of artifice. The whole experience of passing as heterosexual, I think, is sort of part of all of our psychology, and I think that that gives us some kind of insight into um, into human behavior and makes us quick to see beyond surface artifice. Because we grew up as kids. Emmy-winning filmmaker Jane Anderson. Pretending we were something else and always being on the outside, we developed an ability to watch society and to be very keen and empathetic observers. And I think being gay has made me a more sensitive artist because of that. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, 
Email stevepride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. A reminder, OutFest 2021 runs from August 13th to 22nd, and due to COVID, many of the films can be streamed online. Check it out at OutFest.com. Although there's a push in some quarters for only gay actors to play gay characters, that raises one big question. Who's gay in Hollywood? Who's homosexual in Hollywood? Who's undetectable acting hetero? And who at Metro has locked their closet door tight? And who at Warner's hides boys in corners? And tell me who Madonna talks in at night? Who's gay in Hollywood? Find me one lesbian in Hollywood. I know for sure it isn't Jodie Foster. Boy, that would cost her her movie stardom for good. Before I lose my mind, you gotta help me find who's gay in Hollywood. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Oh, come on now. You know, it's very chic to be gay. Really, it is. Why, 10% of the world's population is. So how come I can't find one in Beverly Hills? Ah, well, you know something. I'm beginning to think that there's a cure for homosexuality. A SAG card. (laughs) But you know, I think I'll find me one gay movie star in this dump tonight if it kills me. Even got me my searchlight here. Hmm. Let's see. How about you? No? Well, just gotta keep on looking. Who's gay in Hollywood? There must be one gay star in Hollywood. Since I'm Bette Midler and not Perry Como, my fans are homo and in New York I'm a star. But out in Brentwood, no culture gent would admit that he plays gypsy while in his car. Who's gay in Hollywood? Tom Cruise will never cruise West Hollywood. Cause coming out would cause an awful panic from Cher to Zanuck and cause them their livelihood. No, no one here is queer, just go ask Richard Gere. Who's gay in Hollywood? Just read the papers, he's straight, not gay, no way. Hey, hey. Who's gay 